Most of us have never been on the battlefield of war. But you are in a war right now, and you might not even know it. The story of God is the story of a cosmic war. And the story of humanity is our place in that war. And as the Bible describes the works and the ways of God that are themed throughout its entirety, we see repeated expressions of conflict in the opposition of things like God versus Satan, good and evil, light and darkness, the spirit and the flesh, righteousness and sin, life and death. This is the language of war. And as we think about the beginning and the end of the story of God, in the middle of that story, and moving from the beginning all the way to the end, is this war. I was thinking about the idea of the beginning and the end of the story of God, and it became clear that there are many themes to trace when we think about the idea of the beginning and the end. We could talk about and have talked about creation and recreation as a theme of the beginning and the end. We could talk about death and judgment. We could talk about life and new life. But today, as the capstone sermon in this series that we are calling From Old to New to You, we trace the theme of victory. Victory in the midst of a war in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and what this victory of God means for your life. There's a cosmic war that's taking place. And the Bible shows us that God is the one who will have victory. And so go with me as we tell the story of God from this particular angle and conclude our series together. We see that this conflict between God and Satan begins at the very beginning of the Bible, in the Garden of Eden. And that at the very beginning, there is a promise of lasting victory. God created everything in the world, and behold, it was good. Adam and Eve were given work to do in the garden and among the animals. There was perfect communion between God, his creation, and his created. The glory of God was displayed minute by minute as everything in the world functioned in perfect harmony. But then came a snake. And Satan tempted Eve to sin, and she did. And Adam was tempted to disobey God, and he did. And just like that, the harmony was broken. The glory of God that was displayed in every second was temporarily diminished, and it looked like from the very beginning of creation that God was going to lose this creation to Satan. But in the curse that God placed on Satan and on the earth and on Adam and Eve, 
he also gave the promise of victory. Genesis chapter 3, 14 and 15 points to that curse and that promise. It says this, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the promise, that while Satan merely strikes the heel of Eve's offspring, victory will ultimately be found for humanity when they stomp the head of the serpent. And so God made a promise. Now perhaps some of you have had someone make a promise to you, and as time has gone on, and on, and on, and on, you begin to wonder if the one who made the promise has forgotten their promise. And perhaps throughout biblical history, some may have thought that of God. When would Satan's head finally be crushed? Why is life so hard? If God is the one who promises victory, when will that victory be attained in its completion? And this is the story of the Bible. Throughout the Old Testament, we see many individual victories of God, and those victories display a greater type of victory that is coming for those who oppose him. The victories of God in the Old Testament are myriad, many, many victories, and they're displayed primarily through the military victories of God's people, Israel. Now remember, what was the purpose of God forming a people? The purpose of God forming a people was to display his character and his works and his glory to them and to the earth as he interacted with this people. And he does this even with this people as he accomplishes victory. And it seems like when you think about all the victories of God displayed through Israel in the Old Testament, that there's a common couple of um, realities that emerge. It seems like in almost every single one of them, defeat is imminent. That there's little hope. That in the war, it seems like God and his people are near destruction. The second one is that the battle is not simply fought in a physical way between people and nations. The physical battles of the Old Testament point to a greater battle that is happening between God and Satan. And therefore, victory or defeat is not just about nations and land. It's about God and his power. And thirdly, we see that in nearly every one of these situations, it seems like the disposition of God's people, Israel, toward him is a deciding factor in the battle. If the people of God are self-reliant and prideful, they lose. But if the people of God are humble and reliant upon God, 
they see victory. And so today, we have time just to look at two of the great victories of God that are representative in the Old Testament, and they're representative of many other victories as well. It was of great disappointment to me as I worked on the sermon throughout the week and cut out five pages of victories of God in the Old Testament. But today we look at just two. The first one is a story that many of us know. It's the story of David and Goliath. Remember with me, if you can, that God's people, Israel, were on the verge of their defeat to the Philistines and that the battle lines had been drawn and that... In 1 Samuel chapter 17, it tells us of a man named Goliath, a Philistine who was a champion warrior, a mass killer. And the ESV tells us, and many Bible translations tell us, that he was six cubits tall, which equates to nine feet, nine inches tall. And Goliath, day after day, came to the front of the battle line, and he mocked God by mocking his armies. And in mocking God, he spat upon them. And the people of God and their king, Saul, were afraid. Defeat was apparent. But David, a young shepherd boy, would not stand for this giant to mock God. His confidence, David's, was not in his size. It was not in his skill, and it was not in his army. His confidence for victory was in God and God alone. In fact, 1 Samuel 17, 26 says, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? This isn't just any army. This is God's army. And when speaking to the king, King Saul, a few verses later, in verses 36 and 37, he goes to him and he displays a confidence, not in himself. He displays his confidence in God. He says this, Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, the Lord be with you. And we know the story. They enter the battlefield, and David takes the stone, and he puts it in the sling, and he lands one right between the eyes and the giant falls. And then he cuts his head off because this is war. And the lesson of David killing Goliath is not the lesson of a story of courage. It's not of the underdog who rises up to beat the big giant as famous author Malcolm Gladwell might say. It's not the story of how to overcome the giants in your life, as many pastors have preached. The story of David and Goliath is a story of faith and the victory of God. 
It was God that emboldened the shepherd boy. It was God that David trusted and stood up for. It was God who would not allow his name to be profaned among the nations. And it was God that allowed David to defeat the giant and Israelites to defeat the Philistines. This was a victory of God. Another story of the victory of God is found Later on in 1 Kings chapter 18, it's the story of Elijah the prophet and the prophets of Baal. Some of you may have remembered this story. The people of Israel were at best lukewarm toward God and their king even less so. They didn't know if they should follow God or follow the false god of all the people around them, the god named Baal. Satan had his grip on the people of God because they had forgotten who they were and they had forgotten whose they were. And they wandered from him. And the prophet Elijah came as a representative of the covenant God of this people, Yahweh, and he set up a test for the prophets of Baal and for the power of God. And he did so by a sacrifice to display this power of God. Two bulls were slaughtered, one to God and one to Baal. Two altars were set up for the sacrifice. And 450 prophets of Baal would call upon him to set the bull on fire and receive the offering. And only one prophet of God the lowly man Elijah would call upon him to set the bull on fire and display that he was the one true God. Now if you can imagine the picture and try to feel the context of what is happening, you begin to see that this is the world against Elijah. 450 prophets to one prophet. The king and his 450 prophets and the people against the one lowly prophet, Elijah. 450 representatives of Baal against one representative of Yahweh. This is Elijah against the world. And victory would seem impossible. And the bulls were slaughtered. And the 450 prophets of Baal would call out to Baal they would cry out to Baal. They would sing to Baal. They would cut themselves and sacrifice to Baal. But nothing happened. And as the hours slipped by and the day began to fade away, the dead bull lay on the altar with no flame. But 1 Kings chapter 18 tells us what Elijah did and what God did as a result. It says in verse 30, Elijah said to all of the people, come near to me. And all of the people came near to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel should be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. 
And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two sayas of seed. And he put the wood in order, and he cut the bull into pieces, and he laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench so also with water. And at the time of the offering of oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and he said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, let it be known that this day you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. And then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and it licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all of the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Let none of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. And they were slaughtered because this is war. But the victory is God's. And so you see, by just a few examples, and we could give many, many more, that the story of God in the Old Testament is the story of war and it is the story of victory. Victory over the power of Satan and victory in the lives of his people, Israel. And so let's pause here, kind of at the halfway point, and just draw a couple of implications. What does this mean and what does it mean for us? Implication number one is that the victory of God doesn't always come in the time that the people wanted it to. We see that to be true again and again and again. And this is true in your life. You want the victory of God in your life? You want to see his power and his majesty and his might in your life? Everybody wants that. But it doesn't always come in the exact time you want it to. And so faith means patience and trust. And that leads to the second implication. That trusting God instead of ourselves or our circumstances or our leaders, trusting God enables us to see and to experience that true victory. Most of us go through life and we trust our own abilities to some extent. We navigate the world based on what we see and feel and know, our circumstances, and we might trust our leaders or our community around us. We might trust the fact that we're Americans or the fact that we're from a certain family or we might trust our president or we might trust our, even our pastor. And yet, when you want to see victory in your life, know that every single one of those 
will at some way, shape, or form be inadequate. Trusting God and God alone will enable you to see that victory in the right time. The third implication that we see from the Old Testament is very clearly that false gods and false hopes lead to disappointing results. There was no voice from Baal and there was no action at the altar. They hitched their horse to the wrong wagon and as a result, they were let down. And the same is true for you and the same is true for me. If we place our trust or our hope in things other than God, then we too will end up disappointed. And the fourth implication from the Old Testament is this. The faith that you live by will be the faith that you die by. We're going to come back to that later. But think about it. If David had faith in himself against Goliath, he would have fallen. If Elijah's faith was in his power to rain down the fire of heaven, he would have been the one slaughtered by the creek. In all of these cases of victory in the Old Testament, in all of them, the people that lived by faith saw God's victory. And when it came to their deaths, they did not die in defeat. They died in that victory. And time fails, as we could tell, of the victories of God over Egypt and Pharaoh through Moses or Joshua at Jericho or Gideon or Samson or Deborah and the judges or God's power over the foreign king Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. In all of these instances and many more, God displays glory and power and might and he does so through victory. But as you move to the end of the Old Testament and toward the New Testament, we see that God's people are again in rebellion against him. And he, as a result, is silent toward them. The victories of the past feel like they are long ago. Satan again has his clutch on the people of God. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees ran the religious rituals at the temple in Jerusalem, but God was not present the world was a very dark place and once again it seemed like Satan had won the war. It looked like the world was his. It felt like all was lost. But then came a light in the darkness. Jesus and his life and ministry constituted in so many ways the victory of God in the world that was dark and sinful. Let me give you just three quick scriptural examples of how this is true, the ministry of Jesus being victory. It says in Luke chapter 11 that Jesus had cast out a demon and that the Pharisees were accusing him of casting that demon out by the power of a false god, Beelzebub. And Jesus says this to them in Luke 11 verse 20. But if... It is by the finger of God that I cast out demons. Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But where one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted, and he divides his spoils. It's a brilliant analogy to say that Jesus disarms the strong man, Satan. He takes what he had a hold of, namely men and women, boys and girls, and he claims victory in their lives for God forever. So, in fact, Jesus was so powerful that every single time on earth that he cast out a demon, anytime he healed a sick person, anytime he proclaimed the good news of the forgiveness of sins for Jews and Gentiles alike, and someone put their faith in him and received new life, every one of those events was a counterattack in the cosmic war between God and Satan. Every single one of them constituted a victory of God. The same is true in your life. Every single time the power of Jesus is manifested in you as you resist sin, as you do good works, as you depend upon God again, as you share the gospel, this is the victory of God in your life. We'll come back to that. John chapter 16 Verse 33, Jesus says this, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The power of the world is strong and the power of Jesus is stronger. He has overcome the world. Matthew 12, 20, referring to Jesus, says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. The ministry of Jesus brings justice to victory for those who are separated from God from those who are wounded because of the world, those who are entrenched or meshed in their own sin because in a gentle, loving fashion, this loving Savior will be victorious. And so we see Jesus secures the victory of God, which all of his people will enjoy. Jesus secures the victory of God. And all of his followers will enjoy that victory and enjoy it forever. Not only does the ministry of Jesus procure the victory of God, but so does the cross and the resurrection of Jesus finally give this victory of God. And it does so in multiple ways. Here's just two. Let me read the text to you with almost no explanation. They're self-explanatory. The first one is that the cross finalizes God's victory because our sins are nailed to that cross and our debt for those sins is canceled. Colossians chapter 2 verses 13 to 15 says, And you, which means actually you <laughs> and me, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God 
made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed, this is war language right here, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The victory of God for your life is displayed in the fact that your sin and its debt is canceled because of the forgiveness that he gives you of the cross of Christ. Victory. The second one is that death and the devil will be destroyed as a result of Jesus' death and his resurrection. Hebrews chapter 2, since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all of those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The cross of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus destroys death and the devil and the implications for you and me are profound. Let's talk about them. Jesus secures the victory of God which will be enjoyed by all of those who are his followers. Implication number one for you and for me is that you can have new life in Jesus. It's the message of the gospel. It's the message of the whole story. Victory is God's, which means you can have new life. Some of you feel so burdened by your sin. Some of you feel ashamed by what you've done. Some of you don't like the person you've become and you don't even know really how you got there. But it's been months or years in the making. Some of you think about what you did last night and you'd rather forget it. But the good news of the victory of God is that you can have new life in him. And it's the life to the full. And it's achieved through your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Implication number two is that you can be victorious over the sin in your life Romans chapter 6 tells us that we are no longer slaves to sin if we are united to Christ. Slaves don't do the things that they want to do. They do the things they're compelled to do. And Romans tells us that all the world is compelled or enslaved to sin, which means we have to sin even though we don't want to sin. But through Jesus, you can be set free from that kind of slavery. Martin Luther was once asked how he overcame the devil. And he replied, well, when the devil comes knocking on the door of my heart and asks, who lives here? The Lord Jesus goes to the door and says, Martin Luther used to live here, but he moved out. Now I live here. And the devil, seeing the nail prints on his hands and his pierced side, takes flight immediately. You can have victory over your sin because of Jesus Christ. Implication number three 
is that you are at war. But the outcome is clear. I can't emphasize this enough for our times because so many of us go through our lives without any appreciation for the seriousness of what is really happening around us. We entertain ourselves to death. Our spiritual lives can be viewed as simply meant for our enjoyment or for our encouragement or for our pleasure. And those things are important and they're good. But you are at war. You're at war and some of us are sleeping on the side of the battlefield without any recognition of the seriousness of what is actually happening. Some of us only seek spiritual convenience when it fits into lesser priorities of life. Some of us fall prey to the temptation for personal preference. But the language of your spiritual life is fierce and it's warlike. Here's a couple of examples. 1 Peter 5.8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That is war. Ephesians chapter 6.12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities and against cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That is war. James 4, 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That is war. Neville Chamberlain was the prime minister of Great Britain from 1937 to 1940. He was known for his policies of appeasement, toward Adolf Hitler and the Nazi Reich. He sought to avoid war at all costs. And as a result of his appeasement policy, Great Britain sat on the sideline while the Nazis marched across Europe, capturing much of it. But history remembers Neville Chamberlain not for his pure desire to avoid carnage. History remembers Neville Chamberlain as the prime minister who tried to avoid war but didn't realize that he was already in the war whether he liked it or not. He was asleep as the battle raged and only after Winston Churchill became the prime minister did Great Britain actually start to fight against the enemy that was seeking to destroy it. Don't be like Neville Chamberlain. You're in the middle of a war. Every sin you resist is an act of war against Satan. (laughs) And every temptation he puts before you is his act of war upon you. (laughs) Every person you share the gospel with is a counterattack in this war. Every Sunday that you gather to worship with your church is a proclamation of the victory of God in this war. Every prayer that you pray in dependence upon God is part of this war. Every one of them is an act of war against Satan. 
but we know the outcome. Implication number four. True hope and faith rest in the outcome of victory. Let me explain. Jesus has already defeated Satan. The victory has been won on the cross, but this victory has not yet been expressed in the full, and that's why the war still goes on. Even though the battle rages, the outcome is secure. God promised victory in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and with the empty tomb and the offspring of Eve has crushed the head of Satan. Jesus is the victor, which means that all of those who are his will also be victorious. God's given you a glimpse into your eternal future. And if your faith is in Christ, and yet the war wages on, what can this earth do to you? What can humans do to you? What can disease do to you? Have hope and faith and courage because God wins. And if God wins, that means all of you who are his will win. And so have faith. Implication number five. The faith that you live by better be good enough to die by. Which side are you going to be on? That's the question of life. Will you follow yourself? <laughs> Will you follow your ongoing desires? Or will you follow King Jesus? Because there's no Switzerland in this war. There's no neutral ground. And the call for each and every one of us and the call for you and a call that I hope that you heed is to rent, surrender yourself to God today. Jesus secures the victory which will be enjoyed by the people of God forever. That victory is achieved but it will be fully celebrated one day. And I want to paint the picture for you. Revelation chapter 17 through 20 gives us a picture of the final battle. And God versus Satan. And even though the victory was promised in Genesis 3 and the victory was secured on the cross, the final expression of the victory is seen here. And so let me read for you. And if it helps you imagine the severity of it, close your eyes. And just think upon these things. In Revelation chapter 19, the vision of victory is this. It's severe, it's gruesome, it's powerful, it's majestic, and it's glorious. John writes, when I, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war his eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and a name by which he is called is 
the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine white linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he had deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all of the birds were gorged with their flesh. And then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. And he bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into a pit and he shut it and he sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This was the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power and they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and he will come out and deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and they surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. God 
will have his victory. Jesus secures it. And all of those who are his will enjoy that victory forever. So have faith. Be faithful. Wage war. And trust to see what God will do. Let's pray. Great and majestic are you, our Father. Your power is limitless. And we take heart today because the victory has been won even though the battle rages. And so we pray today that you would prompt us out of apathy, out of slumber, out of passivity, that we would be faithful soldiers in this victory, that courage would be ours, that a outlook on life that is wonderful and joyous but serious and severe would be ours and that we would be partakers in the expression of your great glory in the days to come. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, there's a lot of things that we could say by way of encouragement and the victory of God, but by way of benediction today, let me read from you just one chapter later in Revelation chapter 21. It says this, and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. He also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. To the one who conquers will have the heritage, and I will be his God and he will be my son. God bless you as you go. Have a great week.